Welcome to The Five By, your source for rapid-fire board game reviews. I'm John Gonzalez. In this episode, Christy hangs with Ten, I decipher the initiative, Mike spills the tea on The Witches, a Discworld game, and Mason gets down with Disco Elysium. But first, Sarah takes a look at Pandemic, Rising Tide. A couple of episodes ago, I reviewed Pandemic Iberia, which is a great game, by the way. And writing that review made me realize just how much I miss playing the various forms of Pandemic. It's such a good co-op game, even better solo. It's tense, exciting, well-balanced, the rules are so clearly written, and it's the perfect mix of luck versus strategy. I've never played a Pandemic game or expansion I didn't enjoy, and I haven't been able to bring myself to play it at all since the coronavirus pandemic began. A fun game with plastic cubes that represent outbreaks of deadly disease feels really wrong when millions of people are dying of an actual global pandemic. So I hadn't played one of my favorite games in a couple of years until I wrote that review of Iberia and Mike Grizzly suggested Pandemic Rising Tide. I picked it up and it is great. It uses the pandemic system, but instead of fighting disease, you're building dikes and controlling water levels in the Netherlands. Instead of curing disease, you win by building four major hydraulic structures, which represent actual historical public works in the Netherlands. I looked it up. Instead of epidemics, you have storms. Instead of outbreaks, floods. You get the picture. I'm not going to go into the rules in too much detail, but if you want to know more about Pandemic Rising Tide, check out Mike's excellent review back in episode 28. Very briefly, the board is a map of the Netherlands, and your main actions are pumping water, which removes water cubes, and placing dikes, which creates barriers between regions. You can also build pumps, and at the end of each turn, each pump removes one water cube from the board. But also at the end of each turn, after drawing cards to see which regions lose a dike, then the water flows. That means every region with more than one water cube floods into all neighboring regions that aren't blocked by a dike. And water flows from the ocean into the shore regions as well, so no matter how well you play, you can't stop water from spreading across the board. You can have up to five pumps, and I find that once you get three or four on the board, Rising Tide can swing wildly, from turn to turn or even on the same turn. You run the pumps and yay, the flooding is gone. Then the waters flow and boo, everything is flooded again. You can prevent this by building dikes, but if you draw the card for that region, you'll just have to remove a dike. There are two cards for each region, and I have on occasion drawn the same region twice in one turn. That hurt. There's a push and pull throughout Rising Tide that is for me the best thing about the game. Well, besides the fact that it isn't about a deadly global pandemic. For instance, the pumps can remove cubes from regions that are connected at any distance, but not if the path is blocked by a dike. So the better you keep up with building dikes, the less effective your pumps will be. Similarly, there's a roll which can move other players to any region that has water in it. If you're too good at keeping the board free of water, you end up nullifying that roll's ability. I love this. It's not enough to just be good at clearing water or building dikes. You have to figure out where to build the dikes and where not to. When to pump the water and when to leave it where it is. And since the board can change so rapidly... You can think a region is under control and it's safe to leave it exposed and then suddenly have a big problem on your hands. I really like playing Rising Tide with the variable objectives. These are a small set of cards from which you draw objectives that become your new win condition. There are objective cards for the four hydraulic structures, so you might end up still having to do some of the typical collect five cards of the same color and go to this location to win. Or you might end up with all new win conditions, which can make the game feel pretty different. Several of the new objectives are about growing population, with special population cubes you place in regions. 
But if water flows into a region with population, the people get washed away, i.e. killed. And if you lose five population cubes, you lose the game. Playing Rising Tide with variable objectives reminded me a bit of the Pandemic Legacy games, mid-campaign, when the objectives keep changing and at some point you realize it's kind of pandemic-adjacent. Pandemic Rising Tide was designed by Matt Leacock and Jeroen Dauman and published in 2017 by Z-Man Games. It's out of print, but you can easily find it on online auction sites or from vendors like Noble Knight Games, who did not pay me to say that, I just like them. Just don't buy it from Amazon, it's way overpriced there. The only negative I have is that Rising Tide can be a bit fiddly. With the dikes and the pumps and the water flowing, there's a lot of extra steps compared to classic Pandemic. If you spent a lot of time playing variants like the expansions or the legacy games, this won't be a problem. I admit that my first few games, I did have to read the turn instructions every time, carefully, or I'd forget the water's flow step every time. But still, this is a minor criticism of a solid game that I very much appreciate for giving me a way back into the pandemic system. And that's Pandemic Rising Tide. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you know of other co-op games that play as well as Pandemic and aren't about disease. Then I really want to hear from you. I'm not joking. I really miss that game. If you like presser luck games such as Cheeky Monkey, Can't Stop, or Blackjack, or if you like building runs in classic card games such as Rummy, you might want to check out the card game 10. Published in 2021 by AEG, 10 adds auctions to the mix, creating an approachable game that avid board gamers and more casual gamers can enjoy together. There are four suits in 10, pink, orange, blue, and green. Each suit is made up of numbers ranging from 1 to 9, with multiples of the lower cards and only one each of 7, 8, and 9 per color. There are also wild cards in the game, for example, blue any number or 3 of any color. The objective is to string together the longest possible consecutive run in each color. At the end of the game, you score one point for each card that is part of your longest run in each color. So a run of 4, 5, 6 would score you 3 points. Cards not part of your longest run don't score you any points. If you complete a full set in any color, that scores you an extra point. On your turn, you draw cards from the deck until you either bust or decide to stop. 10 uses a blackjack-style rule that says you bust if your card values accumulate beyond a certain number, but rather than 21, in this case it's... you guessed it, 10. Now, with cards ranging from 1 to 9, it's not hard to go over 10. But fortunately, there are cards that add negative values to the total during your turn, and these cards relate to the bidding aspect of 10. Each player has a stash of currency tokens that they can use to bid on wild cards that are turned up throughout the game. Whenever a player turns up a wild, everyone immediately bids on the wild card. There are also cards in the deck showing different numbers of currency tokens, and when you turn these cards up during your turn, the value is subtracted from your current total. The reason the currency dots count as negative is because you're usually helping your opponents by turning up these cards. If you end your turn by either taking the numbered cards or busting, everyone else gets the currency tokens showing on the cards. If you're low on tokens, you can also choose to take tokens according to the amount that's showing, and that counts as your turn. In that event, no one else gets any tokens. It is possible to bust on currency cards alone if the dots on your currency cards add up to more than 10. If a player busts or chooses to take tokens, the cards not taken are put in an unused card area called the market. 
Once per turn at the end of your turn, as long as you didn't bust, you can buy a card from the market for its face value. The market is an important part of 10 that allows you to plan ahead and get some small measure of control that you wouldn't otherwise have. You're not exactly mitigating the luck of the draw directly, but it gives you a much better selection than the deck itself. I enjoy the suspense of 10, the entertainment of watching other players' turns, and the satisfaction of building my runs throughout the game. Probably some brain chemicals involved there. The wildcard auctions and currency token cards keep players somewhat involved during other players' turns. Also, since there is only 1, 7, 8, and 9 of each color, there is a little bit of competition, but it usually doesn't get too hostile. I like the bright colors and card design used by artist Sean Stankovich. Each card has a big number on the right that fills the whole card vertically, so you can arrange your runs neatly in front of you and everything can be seen easily from a distance. Each colored card has a shape on it according to what color it is, so while I haven't played 10 with any colorblind players, it looks like they took that into account. I've played with 4 and 5 players and it worked great at both player counts. 10 also travels well and can pack down smaller than the box size if needed. My only real critique of 10 involves the bidding. With one exception that I won't talk about here, there is a token limit of 10, so once you're approaching that number, you might as well spend your currency tokens unless there's an expensive card in the market that you're saving your money for. Once you factor in the fact that wilds are pretty valuable, in my experience, the auctions have typically just resulted in whoever has the most tokens winning the card. It's not really a question of making a subjective and strategic determination as to how valuable the card is, since spending down your chips will allow you to get those chips replenished. So in many games, the auction mechanism ends up distributing the wilds mostly evenly among the players, as you're just taking turns having the most tokens and then spending them to win an auction. However, I do still enjoy watching to see who is going to get each wild and how they're going to use them, and it hasn't prevented me from enjoying the game. 10 was designed by Molly Johnson, Sean Stankovich, and Robert Melvin. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening! The year is 1994, and you and your friends are at the local garage sale. You know, like most 14-year-old kids. On the radio, Nirvana plays while you sift through the unwanted tchotchkes of someone's life. Nothing's caught your eye, and your friends are ready to head out and bike to the local corner store for some sodas and chips. Dr. Pepper and Funyuns are always a great choice. But before you head out, you spot a dusty board game and decide to buy it on a whim. You hand over a single dollar, grab the game, and run out onto the yard to catch up with your friends. But someone is watching you from their car, and they have a keen interest in the board game you just bought. Hi, I'm John Gonzalez. What you've just heard isn't the cold open to the next season of Stranger Things or even someone's homebrew campaign of Kids on Bikes. It's the first page of the guidebook for the initiative. Okay, I might have taken some artistic liberties with the first page of this comic book style campaign book and colored it with my own nostalgic recollections of youth, but I feel the game encourages that. The Initiative is designed by Corey Konezka and published by Unexpected Games. The Initiative is a cooperative game about code-breaking wrapped-in legacy-style goodies that are revealed through the game's 14-chapter campaign. You start off with a rules sheet and game overview, a couple of pages of exposition in comic book form, and bam, you're on your way to uncovering the secrets within. The story revolves around the group of middle school-aged friends who uncover the threads of a mystery while playing the key. Think of the key as the fictional game within the initiative. You'll start off the initiative's campaign by playing a game of the key. The rules are straightforward and covered in a two-page rulebook. 
Players move across the board, revealing clue tokens while hoping to avoid traps. The clue tokens have glyphs on them that correspond to glyphs on the mission card for that chapter. The mission card holds a secret message, and it's inserted into the plastic mission console. If you reveal a clue token on the game board and the same glyph is present on the mission console, you flip up any windows with that same symbol. The goal, at least initially, is to uncover enough windows to let you suss out and unscramble the secret message on the mission card. Think clue meets wheel of fortune. Moving, revealing, and collecting clue tokens are all actions that require the active player to play a card by placing it on top of the relevant card pile. The only rule here is that you have to play a card whose numerical value is higher than the one currently on top of the pile. Playing cards to take actions in the initiative involves trusting your table mates and lots of hoping you didn't just lock them out of taking an action. You can communicate during the game, but you're not supposed to declare what cards you have in hand. While this adds tension to the game, there is a way to clear any given deck through a separate action, which is pretty handy. After taking one or two actions, a player's turn is over and they must draw two cards from the deck. Once the deck runs out, four wristwatch cards are shuffled into the deck, and if enough of these wristwatch cards are drawn, the game ends. The good news is that if you're able to solve the phrase before the last wristwatch card is drawn, you win. And let me tell you, this comes real handy, especially when you run out of time and you've got a master code breaker like my partner Lorena on your side. Our later games were often solved at the very brink of disaster, which makes for a really fun experience. There's a lot more to the game's rules and mechanics, but I won't spoil any of that here. Not only do the phrases on the mission card become more difficult to decipher, but the board layout changes between games as new elements are introduced. The initiative is not unlike some of the recent legacy-style games in which new rules, components, and other surprises are revealed throughout the campaign. The initiative was released in 2021, and it kind of fell off the radar a bit, which is a shame because it was one of my favorite games of the year. Lorena and I really enjoyed the code-breaking and strategy found in the initiative, and it made for a perfect game during those long weekends in which we were stuck indoors. The campaign features 15 chapters and 24 standalone missions, which are available after the main campaign is over. Overall, there's plenty of post-campaign content, so no complaints here. The art style is a mix of comic book art and old-school board game art, which ties nicely with the game's theme. The campaign's story and the initiative includes some interesting character insights and development. In fact, the story touches on issues of self-esteem and being honest with your friends. Including elements of character development and introspection in a game about deciphering codes was a nice touch, and I appreciated it. I also love that the game features a diverse cast of playable characters. So, if you're into campaign games and are a fan of code-breaking and deduction, you should definitely check out the initiative. For the 5 by I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. Hello friends, today I wanted to discuss The Witches, a Discworld game, which has been a family favorite for the past couple of years. But first I wanted to give a brief disclaimer. Generally speaking, here on the 5 by we require that games be readily available before we cover them. We've let that stretch a bit due to COVID, as you gotta play what you have access to during these times, but frankly, when I was first getting into board gaming, I got bit by the FOMO of out-of-print games that some outlets wouldn't shut up about. I won't go into what I paid for El Grande and the Coliseum at the time, or my opinions about them, but it's interesting how they fell off the greatest games of all times lists when they were readily available again. Practically no one talks about them anymore. Well, except Patrick because he genuinely likes them. But I do not want to contribute to that kind of hype, so I'll tell you that in the end, if you wish to get a copy of The Witches a Discworld game, 
then please check the used section of your game store, thrift stores, or board gaming conventions. You'll find copies there. Do not pay the stupid prices on Amazon. No game is worth that much. Anyway, on to the game itself. The Witches is a 2013 game by Martin Wallace with art by Peter Dennis. Yes, that Martin Wallace, designer of my personal top 5 game Brass. But that isn't why I bought the game. No, I got it because my wife is a fan of the Discworld book series, and I enjoy them too, but I haven't read the Witches series. In this game you are playing one of four witches in training trying to solve problems in Lanker. You do this by moving about the board, landing on locations with problem tiles on them, and then rolling dice to attempt to solve the problems. I'm going to start with the movement, because I really like how this action works in the witches. You start by moving one to two spaces to a new location, but you must stop on a space that has a problem unless you have an invisibility token or card, or a card with a broomstick which allows you to fly anywhere you want. After you've completed the action on that space, you get to move one to two spaces again and try and solve another problem. I love this back-to-back movement-action combo. I wish more games allowed you to do this, because while the witch isn't exactly a combo building game, it lets you take a second shot at a problem before someone else swoops in and takes it, or take an easy problem which helps you get a titch better before you move on to a harder problem. And how do you solve problems? Well, you roll two dice, then roll two more, and hope you got more points than are required for that problem. Sure, it's more complicated than that as you have multi-use cards you can play for extra points or re-rolls, and completing easy problems gives you more cards in your hand, and completing hard problems gives you more points to add to your rolls. If you're really lucky, you'll have three different cards of the senior witches on them that make the power of three, which solves any problem no matter how difficult. At the end of your turn, you refill your hand, put out new problems, and well, none of that is really groundbreaking, but I guess you have to have some maintenance in a game like this. I do like that if you have a new problem that you're supposed to put out in a location that already has one, that problem gets more difficult and you draw again to find a different location for the new problem. Honestly, the gameplay can get a little rote as it drags on a pinch. First do some easy problems to increase your hand size, then do more hard problems. But don't try for hard problems unless you have a couple reroll cards, a plus four, or a power of three. But don't wait too long to start on hard problems as those are where most of the points are. The game should be light and fun, and it mostly is, but can be frustrating to younger players who get too excited and jump into the hard problems first thing and get smacked down over and over again. Maybe there's a reason laid out in the book, but I do wish The Witches was a cooperative game. I feel like competing to be the best witch in training is a little silly when we should be helping each other. As it stands now, the only cooperative part is that you get to have tea to get rid of cackles. It seems in the books having the cackles is bad, and you gain a cackle token every time you roll what is essentially a 1. You get a cackle and no points towards solving the problem. Cackles really aren't an issue though unless you run out in the supply. Then people can get a minus 1 token. Given that this isn't a hugely high scoring game, a minus 1 can affect your score, but I've rarely seen this play out in a way that affects the standings. My kids get worked up about eliminating cackles, but I just play through as I'd rather solve an issue for a point. At the end of the day, The Witches is light and enjoyable. Even the multi-use cards are simple and straightforward. And while my not reading the books hasn't diminished my enjoyment for the game, my wife and daughter get to make comments about the characters on the cards and the locations on the board. Remember in this book when at this place this thing happened? Which is nice. It adds to their fun and even my fun when the game reminds them of other things they enjoy. Bopping around, solving problems, and having tea? I can't think of anything more that I want in my casual family game. So that's The Witches a Disworld game. Again, if you want to check it out, then look in the used section of game stores, thrift shops, or conventions. Don't give the scalpers on Amazon your hard-earned money. 
Unless you really like throwing away money, in which case hit me up on Twitter at Mike Risley. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Disco Elysium. Over the past five years of this program, I have occasionally discussed something other than physical tabletop border card games. It's usually something that is at least adjacent to the game in a box space, but today I may be stretching even my own fairly loose sense of what that means. I've been playing Disco Elysium, a digital game from Estonian novelist Robert Kurvitz, published by his company Zaum, as stylized as Z-A slash U-M. It's on Steam and Switch and PlayStation and Xbox, but I've been playing it via Google's weird streaming browser console thing, Stadia. More on why in a little bit. If you know me, and a lot of you do, you may know that I'm not really on any level a PC gamer, and I'm certainly not a PC RPG gamer. So, a couple of years ago, when several people I do know recommended Disco Elysium to me, I did the polite, oh yeah, that sounds kind of interesting, and then just forgot about it. Lots of reasons for this. For one, I don't have a particularly high-performance desktop PC. Our Dell is 12 years old, but it still runs just fine, thank you very much. I have less than no interest in buying progressively more expensive hardware to mess around with computer games. The stuff is all really pricey, and I'm long over any desire to upgrade PCs or whatever. Number two, I don't really have a lot of interest in sitting alone in our office clicking around in a game when I could be hanging out with Megan or watching a movie or playing cards. Number three, the last time I played video games seriously at all was in the early 2000s, and they started sucking all of my time and emotional energy, which is one of the big reasons I stopped. But Disco Elysium at least sounded like something I'd enjoy. Described to me as a weird and somewhat bleak existential crisis played out as an RPG, I decided to take a closer look this year when I found out it was available to play on Google Stadia. Why? Because I can play it from the browser on my old laptop and it runs just fine. Additionally, it was on sale and I could use my vast treasure trove of Google Play credit toward it. Stadia uses some kind of cloud-based processor that I don't care to learn about, but it means you don't have to buy hardware to play video games, they just stream through your browser or through your Chromecast. I have no interest in paying $500 every couple of years for a new PlayStation or whatever. So fundamentally, uh, Disco Elysium is a kind of RPG, but it plays more like one of the old LucasArts games. Sam and Max, Monkey Island, Knights of the Old Republic, or uh, maybe if you'd played Revolution's more adult titles like Broken Sword or Beneath the Steel Sky. It's mostly just a point-and-click adventure game, but with endless text trees and conversation generators. I saw someone describe it as a game for people who like reading Wikipedia articles, and honestly, I don't disagree. At times, it feels like a philosopunk exercise in deciding who to be and how to act or a Philip K. Dick and William Gibson collaboration on labor policy, macroeconomics, art criticism, and self-recrimination. If you've ever read the Soviet speculative fiction Oscars, The Strugatsky Brothers, Snail on the Slope, Dead Mountaineers Hotel, or Roadside Picnic, which is the basis for Tartovsky's unparalleled 1972 Russian science fiction film Stalker, it's easy to see the threads of that Soviet bloc melancholy baked into the crust of D.E. So what do you do in Disco Elysium? Well, you're a downtrodden alcoholic amnesiac detective trying to solve a murder, but you mostly just walk around and talk to people. There are plenty of side quests, and you largely choose to play as you want. Are you a corrupt scumbag motivated by booze and speed, or are you a gently introspective artist trying your best to make restitution to the people you've hurt? It's incredibly addictive, especially because you're constantly getting new stuff. A pair of glasses that increases your logic stat, or a tracksuit that lets you hallucinate ghosts of the revolution and you're also solving little portions of the case. It's beautifully structured despite being fairly open world. You're left with plenty of time to just wander around and talk to people. You can die, and I have a couple of times, but you just jump back to your last save and make sure not to do the thing that killed you. Mechanically, and this is why I wanted to talk about it here, it really is just a straight 2d6 RPG. 
You roll against checks in the game, and you combine the roll with your strength and the skill. Super simple. The game does it all for you, of course, but unlike some other PC RPGs I've tried over the years, Disco Elysium is very straightforward in showing you what you would need to do to accomplish a task. Author Michael Kurvitz is an avowed longtime RPG and board game player, which really shows up clearly in-game. Uh, you can buy a Euro game and a pen and paper RPG at the bookstore next to your hostel. Get yourself some extra XP by punching all the tokens out of the board and actually playing it. I mean, you're not, like, actually playing the board game within the game, but you do get to make some strategy decisions about how you might actually play it. Disco Elysium isn't cheap. It's $40 retail. But for the quality of the experience and the density of play, I think it is very well worth it. So my eyes aren't great, and I know a lot of our longtime listeners are also old people like me who don't see well. So I think DE might be hard to play on your TV since there's so much reading involved. Ditto for playing on the Switch in your hand, the text would just be impossibly tiny. Playing on a decently sized desktop screen with a mouse is probably the most accessible. I've been playing on a medium sized laptop and it's just fine though. The newest version, called the Final Cut, which is available on all platforms, has voice actors for the vast majority of the text, which is both easier on the eyes and more fun as long as you're not in a hurry to get through it. So, who should play Disco Elysium? People who are patient. People who don't mind a lot of reading. People who do not like action or combat in games. And people who want an emotionally immersive experience in a weird and slightly sad world of psychometric radio computers, speed freak art punks, and corrupt dock workers unions. I give Disco Elysium 5 out of 5 awards for meritorious service from the Revachal Citizens Militia. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Also check out my alt-country band, the Harper Valley Hypocrites. That's at Harper Valley H-I-P. You've been listening to The Five By, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at Bye Bye Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at fivebygames.com. If you like what we do here on the Five By and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fivebygames. Thanks for listening.